Hey guys, here's something new we'd like to try. We'd like to learn a little bit more about our podcast listeners in order to have better conversations and just find out exactly what you're interested in listening to. And as a reward, we'll give you your own pair of boxes and lined socks, which are very soft and cozy, by the way. I wear them all the time. Just go to the website custom.sockclub.com slash IEX and fill out a very short survey and get your own pair of socks mailed straight to you while supplies last. And they're also free. Again, it's custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. Also, when you do get your lovely socks, tag us in your sock selfies on Twitter and Instagram at IEX. Thanks, guys, and thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Boxes and Lines, welcome. We've got some wonderful lassies as our guests today. <laughs> oh, Christ. Lassies are so old-fashioned. But today okay. we have All two right. wonderful guests. We have Heidi Fisher from Instanet, co-head of Execution Services, Jenny Hadieris from Cowan, global head of market structure and head of electronic trading coverage, and one hell of an American citizen. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks. Oh, thank you. <laughs> what, yeah, what, Jesus. what an introduction nice. and they're both thinking what the fuck have i gotten myself into okay let's try that again welcome to the podcast guys thanks Thank you. <laughs> much better that was great okay well let's let's break the ice here a little bit jesus christ on a cross um so <laughs> jenny and heidi why do we have the two of you on this podcast we understand you guys are friends within the industry and we thought we'd ask an easy softball question at the beginning. How did you guys get to know one another? Well, we met at Deutsche Bank. We both, we worked there together, but I knew Heidi previously from my days at RBC. I was, she was known by name, but not necessarily, I didn't know her personally, but. Usually so there was, was a lot of curse words surrounding my name <laughs> on either side, I'm sure. I was nervous to meet her and it was, <laughs> um, but I have to say we, we got along like peas and carrots from the beginning. And, and so, yeah, we worked together at Deutsche Bank and we've continued to be great friends and, and we work together on projects and trading as well. And it's been, it's been great. So what Jenny's not saying is we were, uh, we had some nicknames at Deutsche Bank which uh, Brian Fagan gave us. We were, Jenny was Trainwreck and I was Calamity Jane. So we yes. were quite a pair because Jenny, <laughs> when you meet Jenny in a meeting or anywhere, anywhere professional, she's the most put together, knowledgeable person you'll talk to that day. But in normal life, Jenny can't keep track of anything. It's like her hair is always on fire. And so anything that could go wrong would go wrong with Jenny, but she had great luck. And no matter what happened, it would work out. <laughs> I had the worst luck ever known to man when we worked together. So like one example, Jenny like would, dropped her wallet on the ground in New York City, got it back, all the money, all the credit cards in it. The same week, a crane went through the window of my apartment in the coldest <laughs> week of winter. So this is how we got our nicknames. Everything uh -huh. good happened to Jenny, bad happened to me. That's great. <laughs> well, you, you seem know, to survive all of that pretty well. A lot of people know your nicknames now. Train wreck. There you go. Calamity Jane. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we can say Jenny and Heidi anymore in this podcast. <laughs> I've gotten over my calamities. <laughs> John Ramsey, would you like to get to the first question? He always says <laughs> I, I hog too much of this. So. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Let's talk about electronic trading because these accomplished women know a lot about electronic trading. You called them lassies at the beginning, by the well, way. I did. I did. But I was just doing the funny, trying to be funny. Okay. 
Are you guys, no. did you guys think it was funny? We've, we've both been called a lot worse than last year. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Today. Exactly. <laughs> I, I apologize on behalf of John Ramsey. <laughs> so in any event, if I can try to recover the thread of my question, you obviously know a lot about electronic trading. Interested to get your thoughts on, you know, over whatever period of time, last 10 years, what's become most challenging about running electronic trading business you know, we focused a lot at IEX recently on concerns around displayed liquidity, the um, difficulties of trading on exchanges, um, decline in displayed uh, liquidity. That's that's one issue, certainly. And just the proliferation of the number of venues and just kind of the challenge of being able to navigate all of those. I would assume, I assume all of that has got to make the job much more complicated than it used to be. But I'm interested to get both of your perspectives on that. Yeah, I think what I find the most fascinating when you said, you know, the past decade or so I thought about it and I said 10, 10 years ago, I started doing market structure and we are still talking about the same issues, whether it's yeah. market data or off exchange trading or, you know, I think about the note that we wrote at Deutsche Bank on inaccessible liquidity and all that was five years ago. And it's now a hot topic. Did you topic. guys know that Jenny invented the she, she seriously did invent the term inaccessible liquidity that everyone uses <laughs> as a common term now. We tried to copyright it. I don't know. It's all the rage. Everybody's yeah. using it. I've it got is. the tattoo. Yeah. That, like five or six years <laughs> ago. So she should have full credit. Yeah. But it's but it's crazy because we're still talking about the same thing. So I think this idea... I think what I've come to realize is that we've done a lot of advocating for change. And I certainly think everybody at this table, you know, thinks about innovation and has tried to come up with their own solutions. Certainly you guys have from an exchange perspective, certainly Heidi has in her seat and we have a Cowan. And I, and I think what we've realized is nobody's going to change this for you. Nobody's going to fix it. Nobody's going to come up with the pilot that you want. And when they do, it's probably not going to look the way you want it to look. So you've really got to innovate and come up with the, the solutions on your own. And so that's, I think that's the fun part about electronic trading. That's the fun part about the job. As we hear people complain about inaccessible liquidity, which we've been complaining about for five years, <laughs> I, 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 we are actually, I got an email today that we're getting the code in to take that into account in terms of our addressable volume in the algos. And so that's something that's exciting. And I think that's ways that you can differentiate yourselves. I think about delimit, which you guys came up with. It's going to be more, I think the market will benefit the people that are able to be nimble and move quickly and that in in, in a you know in a post mifid environment where best execution is key and I, I think that's really exciting uh sitting in sitting in our seats in electronic trading it, it is kind of amazing how durable and constant some of these issues are over and over and often the same people saying some of the same tired things. It's funny. It's, it's really a balance, I think, when you think about electronic trading and, and it's changed from, I'd say, and where I think it's changed is you used to think electronic trading. And if you really go back 10 years ago, you had the most junior people in any firm watching orders and they were more like clerks if something kicked out there was no real interaction with clients and now we're in this landscape where i think pretty much across the entire street coverage around electronic is as high touch in a different way than high touch coverage or pt coverage or, or any other type of coverage and so that's one thing that's changed quite a bit your electronic team 
are expected to be the experts on market structure, on how to trade, how to use the algos, all these different components. And then when you think about the seats that Jenny and I sit in, we're not just focused on the day-to-day trading and how do you think about talking to clients about that. We're thinking, how do we, you know, we we work very closely. I I mean, I do, and I, I know Jenny does as well. We work very closely with our product teams and our development teams, our quant teams to figure out where do we go next? And your electronic platform is the base of every product that's traded in a way, right? It's not just for people who want to trade through the algos. And when you think about that, it's a balance. Do we react to something interesting going on in market structure? Do we react to a request that one of our biggest clients put in? We have to react if there's something regulatory that's coming down the pike. Mm. Do we think we can come out with something latest and greatest that nobody's done? Or do we focus where on a specific strategy where maybe we think we've fallen behind, but a lot of people are already doing it. So when I think about like what the job is to run an electronic trading business, a lot of it comes down to balance. What do we need to have to continue to be successful today? But how do we think about building our business and the strategy around it so that we're still relevant in one year, three years, five years? Yeah, and you're also managing people through that process too, which is yes. always difficult, John Ramsey. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you never miss an opportunity. It, it, it has to be a challenge, and I'm just curious as to a, a lot of things, but the proliferation of venues, and this is not from a uh, self-interested standpoint to complain about the number of additional <laughs> venues, you know, becomes competition's great and all of that. But it often feels like there's just additional versions of, you know, slightly different shades of gray, you know. And so it's important for people to have choices and options. Um, But when you've got an order protection rule and when in practice you have to connect to every single market that comes along, uh, regardless of whether you otherwise would choose to or not, it's got to make it kind of tough. Either you have any thoughts about is, is there a fix to that? Should there be a higher a hurdle for people to have that kind of status to kind of force the entire industry to connect to them? I think the hard part is you, if you play around with the order protection rule, what we saw in Canada is it didn't do a whole lot to change where the order flow went. It's essentially if you're displayed, people will go there. And if you're displayed, and I think you guys probably saw that from your experience as well. If you're displayed but not protected, people still take you into account and we'll go there. And so I don't know that it's yep. necessarily a regulatory fix per se. It's it's hard because I think exchanges are experiencing somewhat what brokers have experienced for a long time, which is just there are a lot of them <laughs> right now. And there's a lot of competition and it is really, really hard to differentiate yourself. And so I don't have necessarily, I don't think it is a regulatory solution as much as I do think the market seems to have figured, figured it out in a way and that there are venues that are very small and that continue to be very small and don't necessarily, you know, that there seems to be a grouping of exchanges that, that don't necessarily grow and that, and, and the ones that are growing like yourselves or the people that are offering solutions. And so it does feel like, you know, similar to the broker landscape landscape, it's like an evolve or die type situation um, that the market forces will sort of figure it out. And granted with order protection, you're forced to go there, but at the same time, if you're not offering something super differentiated or your technology isn't necessarily up to snuff, the market seems to figure that out pretty quickly. 
Look, it's a big drag on resource, right? Like obviously every new exchange requires a lot of work for the sell side to get ready because to your point, we have to go there. At the end of the day, like I think the, our sentiment is just, we will route wherever we can get good liquidity, right? So we go by the data. So when a new exchange gets, comes into play, like what's our, what's our first step? we'll simply take liquidity where we need to because of the order protection rule. We won't actually go and add liquidity on those venues until we see a reason to. So we let the data make that decision for us. But yeah, it's still a lot of resource getting set up. I differ from Jenny a bit in that I do think that there's probably some tweaking that could be done with the order protection rule. I'm not sure the way Canada did it is the right way to do it. Like I'm not sure it's an absolute percent of the market and I don't have the right answer of what it looks like right now in my mm-hmm. head. But I think that the way the, the U.S. trades today, there's, there could be some creative ways to still protect people, to give new exchanges a chance, especially right. if they might offer something unique. Maybe someone only has half a percent of volume, but it's unique volume. And it's not something that you're seeing right. elsewhere. And they should be granted protection. So I think it's more complicated than like, do we do we change the rule or not? I think it's about like, how do we change the rule that would come into play? And how long does someone get protection before it's clear they're, they're not growing and they're not order, offering something differentiated? Yeah. And in, do you feel like you have the information that you need in order to determine which, how much liquidity is accessible or inaccessible? Or So one of the things that people increasingly have been talking about in recent weeks is maybe there should be more disclosure around TRF volume, more timely disclosure, so you know how much volume is actually, can be accessed someplace. I would absolutely say we need more transparency, particularly in the off-exchange landscape, because to use data from four weeks ago in some of these names, six weeks in certain instances, you're looking at, you know, that is so irrelevant to the total market at this point. You know, it's the best thing we've got, so we'll use it, but... I have questions a lot of the times intraday where people are asking how much of this volume is inaccessible and you're sort and you have to say, okay, so historically only 10% of this trades in dark pools. And it's just, it's very difficult to read the tape for us. I have to imagine for clients, it's incredibly difficult. So increased transparency there would be massively helpful. I also think the tricky part about it when we think about transparency is that it's not just the off exchange volume that's hidden, right? There's hidden volume on the exchanges as well. And so when we think about what percentage of the total market is actually protected and displayed, when we incorporate not just the off exchange volume, but also the hidden on exchange, I mean, we're looking at a very small percentage of the market that sort of sets the goalposts or the boundaries as as far as the MBBO for the rest of the market. And you know, I think people need to look beyond just the off exchange volumes and look at the hidden liquidity because the market between dark and gray is is astronomical at this point and it's problematic you see it in individual names and so i think we need some more transparency there and i think some of the sip amendments will address some of that and in terms of displaying more of that and i absolutely would be in favor of that in addition to the increased transparency off exchange Good. I'm going to, do you want to ask another question? Yes, I I will uh, ask another question. Okay, go on, ask one. So you both have important responsible positions with respect to electronic equity market structure generally. It's not something where 
female professionals are as rare as they used to be, um, for sure. But it must have been, but I suspect it was rarer when you first started doing that. Um, and so we've asked other female professionals about this and kind of their perspectives on that. What was it like early on? Did you have, did, were there women around that, that actually were available to be as mentors um, for you? Or did you rely on male mentors? What was the experience like and how is it different now? Either one of you or both together, whatever you want to do. I'll kick <laughs> off. Um, I, I started uh, some years ahead of Jenny, so the landscape was a little bit different, I think. But to put it in perspective, my first holiday dinner when I got into this business, um, I was out with a team of 21 people and I was the only woman at the table. So early on, there weren't a lot of women around. There definitely weren't a lot of women, senior women to look to and, and speak to. Um, I think thankfully that's changed over time. I definitely had a bunch of male mentors, people who, who helped me throughout the years. That was key. Um, but I would say as I grew in the business and developed relationships with women who are my peers, people like Jenny, people who were internal, people at clients, people at exchanges, I found this crazy group of supportive women. Some of my very close friends today are women I met through this business, and you'll never meet a fiercer, more loyal group of women cheerleaders, sounding boards than that group. So I do think things have changed. When I think about our business and whether you need male mentors, female mentors, I think you need both as a female in this business. And I think, you know, currently today, in the corner offices are still largely men. I think it's starting to change. We're seeing some good progress, yeah. but there's still men. And you need to have some mentors who can understand how you'll be perceived when you walk into that office and how what you say will be perceived and that can help you tool the way you present yourself. And then it's nice to have women who understand what you go through and what you're coming through and who may think more similar to you to help you on the other side. So I think the right answer is a combination of the two, which I'm happy today is the landscape that I think we live in. Yeah, I certainly, I certainly would echo that. I think it's, I've had a different career path and that I didn't really go right into coverage or sort of a traditional role when I first started uh, on the street. I was almost doing a business analyst, um, you know, kind of chief of staff role. And I think, you know, it helped to be doing something that was different from what other people were doing because it wasn't necessarily like you were competing to be the one woman in the group you were sort of doing something that other people weren't doing anyway and so and so when i moved into market structure with ronin um that was a relatively new team and it was carving a new pathway and so it, it helped to not only be you weren't just you know, different from everybody uh, in terms of being one of the only women, but you were doing something, you were doing kind of a new role. And I, and I think as far as mentors, I've had both female and, and, and men mentors along the way. And I would absolutely echo what Heidi said. There is no fiercer group than the women on Wall Street that help each other out. And it is, I mean, they are defensive of other women. They share contacts, they share clients, they share ideas. And it is it has helped me in my career, absolutely. And I'm proud at this time that 
our desk at, at Cowan is 50% women in the electronic space. And I think if you asked anyone on our desk, they would tell you the women are the scarier ones. So <laughs> <laughs> That's really great to hear. And I wouldn't necessarily have expected it that there would be, but having a network of mutually supported people, frankly, in any field that you're in is really important, but it's really nice to hear that you, that, that, that exists. It's okay. funny when Jenny was coming to work at Deutsche, the common theme that we heard on the street was that everyone just assumed we'd hate each other because yeah. we were both senior <laughs> women and how could two senior women get along and like couldn't be further from the truth. And I think Jenny just hit on a really interesting point when she said, you know, she wasn't fighting to be the only woman at the table because she was doing something different. And I think one of the things that's changed is I feel like when we were starting in this business, there was this feeling among a lot of women that there was only going to be one. So let's take other yeah. women down. And I'm happy to say that I think by and large, at least like 80% of the women I know in this business are all about getting more women on the table because we don't want to be seen as the woman at the table. We want to be seen that we're at the table because we're really good at what we do and we belong at that table. And I yeah. think that's a difference in how people think today. That's great. It, it is really, I mean, that was kind of always the stereotype is the sense that senior women and particularly in the same firm would always be competing and, and, you know, try to denigrate the other. And it's, it's good to hear that it's not a, I, I um, do hope that translates over from the business side to the technology side as well, because as we try to hire people, like uh, particularly in the development side, the, the, there's not much of a selection from, you know, of women. And I'm not sure what that is, is if it's just, you know, behind, behind the business side of things, but um, we definitely find it disappointing in that regard because we've been trying to diversify there as very hard to do so. And I'm, I'm guessing it's similar at your guys' firms. I find it so hard across the board to recruit people in technology because you're competing yeah. in technology, not only with other banks, but with the tech industry and startups and and things that tend to be a little bit more exciting, I would say, for kids coming out of college. And so, yeah, I think it, it, even, especially in that space, but men, women, whatever in that space, it's very hard to find talent. Actually, Jenny, that's an interesting point because I think, and, and I know this isn't exactly the topic we're on right this second, but I think when you think about COVID and this pandemic and what it's forced companies to do and to figure out and people working remotely, I think that actually has the potential to change our industry from a diversity standpoint, not just gender. I do think it could help for, for gender, but I also think when, you know, we're, we pride ourselves in being a FinTech as well at, at Instanet. And I think when we think about it, we are, you're competing with, with the Googles of the world and, and, you know, they can work in cool cities and, and work cool hours. And we're kind of looking at it now and saying, are we setting a new precedent? Can we now compete? Can we allow people to work more remotely? Can we be more flexible? Obviously not in market facing people, but in others as far as like, how do we think about people's hours and schedules? So I think one of the positive aftershocks, if we want to call it that, of, of the pandemic might be a difference in the culture of working on Wall Street and, and actually taking out that you must be on your desk from seven to five everyday mentality and, and allowing us to change the dynamic of what our workforce looks like. That's a great transition because uh, we ask a lot of our guests, you know, how they're managing through COVID. And I, you know, I assume like us, like most people, you're still at home. And uh, what you guys see as plans as to when you might return, but 
to your point, Heidi, uh, will some portion of it go fully remote? Like I, I'll say, speaking from our standpoint, or even myself, I'm a little old school. I always thought people should be in the office. And if they're not in the office, they're probably not near working the same level. And COVID changed my idea there where you can actually be productive and you're not just bullshitting people saying you are. So that aside, I'm wondering, like, how does this transition when we go back? Does everybody come back? Do we hire more people remote? Great question Jenny, once again. <laughs> they're just so they're stunned. We're they're stunned by the brilliance of your thinking, Ronan. Mrs. Doubtfire, when it goes quiet like that, can you fucking say something? <laughs> Jenny, you want to kick off? Or? Yeah, I think it was certainly, it was hard going from the desk to home full-time, I will say that, right? It's so, especially in electronic landscape and anything, you know, I think we all tend to, everybody here tends to work at a pace that's a bit faster and you want to be more innovative and you want to kind of, you want to come up with new ideas. And we definitely benefit from sitting together and being able to holler over the desk when you have an issue or someone's or someone's come up with an idea and wants to share it. It's just, it's physically easier to walk into an office and, and communicate with someone and, and mull it over in a room and have other people join in and share their ideas. So I definitely, I miss that element, but I will absolutely say having been in Maine full time since March as a working mom, this has made my life and and my ability to be a, a mom and and also work at the pace that I was working before uh, more sustainable, absolutely. And so I think about that for the future of this industry, particularly given the lack of women in senior positions. And I've seen a lot of women who couldn't balance at all and who, you know, either passed up bigger roles or, you know, removed themselves from the running entirely or or left the industry, a lot of them. And I hope that this that these changes are sustainable and that we keep more of those women because, you know, I've had wonderful mentors around along the way that this industry would have benefited from staying, staying in their seats. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good point that I hadn't thought about it. I mean, the only thing I can say about the pandemic experience is that I've enjoyed working remotely. The one good thing about being in the office was, you know, and we're all, I think probably uh, overworkers at some level, but at least when you left the left the office, there was some point of division where you sort of felt like there's now a home life and I can sort of transition to that. You know, there's no commute anymore. It's from the bed to the, you know, the home office or whatever. So it feels kind of like more all-encompassing in some ways to me than it did before. So, and, you know, and with Ronan for a boss, I mean, you know, you can imagine uh, <laughs> what that's like. I'm, we, not, I'm, uh, I'm not even going to comment. Heidi. Yeah. <laughs> We, um, we've been fully work from home since like March 24th, March 25th. And even for most of March, we had just a small group still in the offices. I actually had back Monday, we're, we're sending a, a small representation of our different execution businesses back on an every other week schedule so we can keep distance. And the thought process behind it was just kind of like upcoming election, expecting, and this may air after the election, but I promise you when I'm saying this, the election hasn't happened yet. (laughs) (laughs) So no one thinks I'm nuts. Our goal is to get some people in the office. We're we're expecting obviously some, some potential high volatility, high volumes, potentially hurricanes, same time. So, you know, there is some comfort to having people in the office where you know the system's will be up. There's no concern that you're losing, someone's losing internet at home or, or, or 
entire power entirely. That being said, I think I think uh, the future is going to look like a combination of things. We'll, we'll, we're definitely discussing roles that don't need to be in the office that could be work from home and come to the office for maybe uh, team gatherings or specific meetings, client meetings, whatever it might be. I think there's some element of execution that's probably always in the office, but potentially there's some kind of rotation so everyone doesn't have to all be in the office at once. We've just made, we're in the process of finalizing making our disaster recovery site in Rybrook into a branch office and potentially looking in New Jersey to have another. So I think like when we think about the new world, a lot of firms I think will look to smaller real estate that's a little more scattered that still lets people come together and have work systems, but in a way that doesn't require everyone in New York City. And our biggest focus right now is how do we keep people communicating? So how do we think about hoots when people are at home? And how do we think about how people are connecting via Zoom and feeling like they're all still part of an organization, whether they're at home in one office in another office? So we've been focusing a lot on that element and trying to, to make sure we're keeping communication tight. And still a lot of it falls back to, to FINRA. Right now, we're all working from home at the grace of FINRA, right? And so we don't know how long this is going to last either. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. Like I, I, like I said, I wasn't into working from home. But um, for example, we use a lot of Zoom. Uh, we Teams as well. But like Zoom is just fantastic. If I didn't see John's shaggy head on every day. <laughs> It's shaggier now. It's hard to get to the barber <laughs> these days, Ronan. So it, yeah. True, it's true. I'll, I'll bring my clippers when you yeah, show up and, next week. Yeah, oh. yeah. I can't. Yeah. God help me. Well, so I have a question. We ask all our guests. It's the, it's the question of questions is what's your favorite Wall Street movie and why? Who wants to go first? Because anytime I ask a question, for some reason, you guys fucking pause. So Heidi. It's being polite. Yeah. Um, so go, John Ramsey goes, what's the square root of XYZ? They're like, what is this? I go, what's your name? <laughs> Women are so used to men just going first and talking over you that we, we tend to wait. <laughs> we, we, we would never do that in this podcast. Um, so I'm not a big Wall Street movie person. I'd rather watch Billions than watch any of the oh, old school yeah. Wall Street movies. That, but I will say, I'm still waiting to see if this Flash Boys movie gets made, who will play Ronan Ryan? Uh, and that uh, may make it my new favorite movie. <laughs> Depending on who, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> we have no Didn't idea love on the that. book, but may love the movie. <laughs> You'll love the movie. You'll love the movie. I'm going to play um, myself. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think mine I'd is... say I play myself, but there were no women in that book. <laughs> <laughs> Again, yes. Oh, boy. Ouch. Ouch. Sorry, we're going to edit that. <laughs> um, mine is, because I'm a sicko, American Psycho. Oh, ah, Jesus. great one. Actually, that's a that's a great answer. It's very innovative and yeah. spot on. And it was a, it, it's not a sicko uh, answer it's at great, all. I, great I, movie. Love, I love that movie. Says John uh, Ramsey. Yeah. <laughs> it's about a guy thinking he's killing people. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. Exactly yeah. what I'd expect of you, Jenny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. I know. That was a good movie. Know me well, Heidi. <laughs> and, and then before we go, we didn't tell you about the gift you get for joining us on the podcast. And we used to make people say the word transparency. But uh, I think you both said it like 15 times. So you're not getting 15 pairs of socks each, mm -hmm. but we're going to send you your very own pair of IEX socks. That's fantastic. <laughs> you really know the way into a woman's heart. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's the quickest answer I've gotten from you. 
<laughs> to warm your little sucks. feet in these coming winter months. Should I drop my pair off at War- uh, Walker's Point so that President Bush can wear them down the beach? Oh, yeah. Did you hear this story? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this Jenny's sister one. was on the beach. And sister-in-law, she saw, yeah. Sister-in-law. She saw uh, former President George Bush and his wife, Laura, out for a stroll. And she asked if he could take a picture. And when she took the picture and sent it to Jenny, uh, George Bush was wearing an IEX vest. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> free marketing, free marketing. You know what? The funny thing is, if you look at that picture, it looked like he wore the vest like while he was fucking baking. There was like white shit all over it. So what we did is we uh, we sent him a new IEX vest, but you guys get the socks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when we're allowed back in the office, well, when more than a few of us are allowed here, we'll have you down for beers, okay? And wear your socks. Good. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. We we really appreciate you joining the podcast. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's been great. Thank you. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.